0: He evidently was a man who uh, enjoyed loving other people. In fact, it, uh, one of the traditional stories told about him is that he uh, healed a, uh, somebody's daughter, a Roman soldier's daughter, and then wrote her a note. And at the end of the note, he said, you're Valentine. And so when you sign uh, your cards, you're Valentine, you can thank Valentinius uh, for that thing. Of course, cards and the way we celebrate Valentine's Day didn't come into vogue until the mid, uh, M- Middle Ages uh, when they started applying other celebrations to Valentine's Day and about love itself and about relationships. And it wasn't until about the uh, 19th century people would write notes to one another, to their significant others, those they love. they would write a note. And then we as a people here in the West, we got lazy and we hired companies out of Omaha, Nebraska to write are words of endearment to our loved one. And we would buy the card and give them the card. And so we got kind of lazy. But uh, one of the Valentine's days that stick out in my memory, I was in the fourth grade uh, in uh, Denver, Colorado. And, of course, in those days, I don't know if they still do it, but all the kids would bring Valentines to give to all your classmates. And I came up with the bright idea that I would be the anonymous lover. Okay? So I had some, I think I signed them something about, Cupid something or other, and I handed all these cards, Uh, but I was too stupid to realize that they would figure out really quick as they compared cards, who was the anonymous valentine giver, and so after the party that day, Nancy Nagel and her gang of girls came up, uh, just yelled at me, and then she kicked me in the shins with her big clunky shoes, and as I limped home, I realized that my career as an anonymous lover was very short-lived. And, uh, and actually, today, I bought my wife a card, got her a card, and she didn't kick me in the shins, so we're doing okay this morning. But I was thinking, you know, it's interesting, as Dave was talking about Scripture, and as Dave Gossett shared his testimony, and the wonder of God's Word being applied to the heart, changing lives, transforming us, and uh, just to hear both of these elders talk about how God's Word has transformed them in the application of God's Word. And I think every person who has trusted Christ as Savior here this morning would have a similar story, whether you're five years old when you realize that or 30 years old when you realize that. Uh, God's Word is important and foundational. And uh, so I would encourage you to read our Affirmation of Faith Uh, and uh, see what we believe and why we believe it. Also, uh, to think about your own testimony. If you were standing up here uh, testifying of God's grace in your life, what would you say and how would you say it? And it's a good exercise to go through. If not for yourself, it's good for your family, it's good for your church family, and for those who would follow you in the faith. So it's a good thing, good exercise to do. But one of the things that we believe in here is expounding the word of God, or what is called expositional preaching, allowing the word of God to speak to us, not, telling us, not us telling the word what to say. Uh, that's a mistranslation. Uh, so we need to approach the Word of God. And so one of the challenges, of course, is when we preach through a book or teach through a book, is that we come to a day like Valentine's Day. And as you heard Russ read the passage this morning out of Second Peter chapter 2, you're probably thinking, wow, false teachers and Valentine's Day. Well, I didn't plan it that way. It was an intersection of the calendar with uh, my preaching calendar and yet here we are in Second Peter chapter 2. But I thought really how appropriate it is because our culture and our society has many false teachers telling you what love really is. And young people are very susceptible to that, that romantic love is going to answer all of their life's problems, that somebody will come into their life and it will make everything good. I thought when I met her and we got engaged and I was getting ready to get married that I would never have to take out the trash again. That had been my job growing up as an only son. I had to take the trash out. I thought, this woman's come into my life. She's going to take the trash out. I quickly realized that the romantic love was not going to make her take the trash out. It was still my job. It is to this day I take the trash out. So, uh, so there are many false teachers in our culture. Watch any TV show, any movie, read many secular books, and they will portray a love which is either so carnal or so out of the truth that they are really false teachers, aren't they? Who designed love? Who invented love? It was Jesus Christ. It was God himself himself. God so loved the world. In fact, in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we talked about two of the characteristics of a growing Christian, a Christian who is utilizing the Holy Spirit's power in their life is brotherly love and love itself, that agape love that Christ expressed on the cross of Calvary, that sacrificial kind of love. That is the true teacher of love, not what our culture tells us. So today we are going to real quickly Introduce chapter two, and we're not going to go all the way through it. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of long, but this is the primary point of Second Peter. Remember, Peter is writing to warn the church to beware of false teaching and false teachers that are infiltrating the church. This was not a problem unique to the first century. This is an issue that is with us today and even more accelerated with the internet, with uh, multimedia, with all the things we are exposed to, false teaching can slip into our lives. So we will look <laughs> briefly at 2nd Peter here this morning. Let me pray and we will begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and mercy that has poured out on our lives. Thank you for the testimony of Dave Gossett and and Dave Johnson, too, about how your word has transformed them. What a unique experience to be uh, marooned on an island off of Central America with just the Bible to read and how you design that. And in that, uh, you have rescued a man and his whole family, and and have just increased the kingdom of God through that. And thank you for that. Thank you for your word this morning. We pray that we would have discernment and we'd have attentiveness and that we would have knowledge about what we are to do as a people in your grace. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen. During the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, there was a general, a Spanish general named Emilio Mola, and Emilio Mola had surrounded a town that he was going to take, and he had marched on this town, and he was asked by uh, one of the press that were with him, one of the correspondents, war correspondents, how many columns of men he had. And Mola, General Mola responded, I have five. He said, I have four columns of men behind me, and I have one column inside. The fifth column is inside the walls of the town. Of course, his reference was made to the infiltrators and the partisans in this particular city that were already in place to do his bidding to overthrow the town that he was besieging at that time, the fifth column. Uh, Peter's contention that although the church is buffeted from the outside, like in 1 Peter, from persecution from the outside, his contention here is that there is a fifth column of the enemy within is actually Satan's own fifth column. And uh, it's very appropriate to, the pictures very appropriately false teaching that has arisen in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're familiar with the Pew Foundation, the Pew Foundation uh, does many studies, uh, and uh, they take uh, many uh, uh, options as far as looking at how our culture is doing. But a recent study that Pew did on the American religious landscape uh, really was very startling and part of it. In this study, uh, they discovered that there are many adults who identified with specific religious worldviews, and uh, they were asked, they asked these people "Is if they see their own worldview, their own religion, as the one true faith leading to an eternal life, or In their view, where many religions can lead to eternal life. And in a stunning revelation, uh, two-thirds of Christians uh, responded that they believe many religions can lead to eternal life and that uh, a lot of Christians believe that some non-Christian religions can lead to life everlasting. Uh, We live in a day and age where false teaching has infiltrated the church. It is already in the church at large. James Emery White, who wrote a report on this or a blog on this in the Church and Culture blog, said, with such a mindset, we should not be surprised at our tepid attempts at evangelism when, when attempted there are such poor results and why the church in the West seems to be in somewhat of a decline. So what is the answer to false teaching, the false doctrine? Well, we've already heard part of it is as we've been going through our affirmation of faith. It is uh, offensive as well as defensive. We want the people to know what we believe, why we believe it, but also it is there to protect us from false teaching when it comes into the church. And uh, so we want to make sure that that is in place and that is in our minds. But the best, teach, best uh, defense against false teaching is true living, and living that is based upon the Word of God and a church filled with growing believers, vibrant in their faith, and we're not likely to fall to, uh, to victim to apostates and heretics of count, counterfeit Christianity. And uh, so the Apostle Peter is going to give us uh, some idea of the identity or the description of the false teachers, uh, the destruction of the false teachers, as well as <clears throat> the deliverance of the righteous the deliverance of the righteous so uh, he first describes in this chapter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3a he describes the false teachers he'll go on through the rest of the chapter we will start getting more of description of them and my challenge to you over the next couple of weeks is read through chapter 2 and see if you can write down uh, what describes, what marks, what tattoos a false teacher? How would we identify one if they came into the church? Well, first of all, in this description of false teachers, notice in verse 1 of chapter 2 that uh, false prophets the, but also arose among the people. The people is is also synonymous with the nation Israel. Remember at the end of chapter 1, before some later people put that big number 2 in there, uh, that he was talking about Scripture. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, But know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. And he reminds the church that he's writing to, to the Christians, that this is nothing new. Israel had a series of false prophets. All we have to do is go back and read the Old Testament to see that there were. And then he uses this explanation, Just as there will also be false teachers Among you, false teachers among you. And uh, false teachers, that word that's used, that Peter uses here, can be translated lying teacher. It's pseudo, uh, excuse me, didaskalos, which means teacher. And this is a pseudo teacher or a false or a fake teacher. It's the combination of those two Greek words that are translated here. Now, I don't know anybody who likes to be lied to. Uh, We don't like to be lied to. Uh, And yet here, Peter is warning us that these lying teachers will come in. So first of all, one of the descriptions of a false teacher is that they are deceivers. They are liars just by the very identity that he has used there. And notice what they do in verse 1. These false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will secretly do it. There'll be just enough truth alongside of their secret heresies, their destructive heresies, that unless you are keen to understand God's word, what God's will is, you could be tricked into it because it is a secret. It is a fifth column approach uh, into destroying the church with destructive heresies. They are destructive. They, elsewhere, it talks about their destructive words that they're going to use. And so this is one of the descriptions is that they were deceivers. There's a word that's used here, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 3, deceptive words. And the Greek word is the word we get the word our, our English word plastic from. We get the word plastic or plastic words is what he's saying here. Uh, When we lived in the upper Midwest, when our youngest daughter was in college, she worked at an injection molding company for a while on the night shift where they made everything from those plastic lawn chairs to medical supplies, and she was on one of the medical supply lines, but it was all the same stuff, the plastic. They ran through machines, into the molds, and came out with various products, but it was all plastic. It could be formed and shaped different ways to get different products. And here he uses this term plastos, which is the Greek, which means plastic. In other words, they are fabricating. They are constructing without basis. In fact, they are using plastic plastic words. And words uh, sometimes can be twisted into mean anything you want them to mean. The false teachers use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. So you look at other worldviews, and they may talk about a Savior. They may talk about salvation. They may talk about repentance and redemption and receiving Christ. But some of these other world religions or worldviews or opinions don't use our dictionary. They mean other things. There are wrong meanings applied to the words. So they are deceivers, first of all. And it is difficult to identify deceivers, and yet they are deniers. And here's where we start understanding what they deny. Notice again in verse 1, these false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They are denying Jesus Christ. One of the fundamental questions is what do they do with Jesus Christ? That is always a foundational question to ask anybody. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Who is he? What happened? What do you do with Jesus Christ? These deceivers, these false teachers are described as being in denial of Christ. They vocally deny him. They are deniers. And then thirdly, they are destroyers. Then verse 1, notice that they have destructive heresies, destructive words. They may be spiritual, they may be religious, but they are on the wrong path. And so this description of false teachers remains with us. They are not only destroyers of a church, they are sensual. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 2. Many will follow after sensuality. And, of course, it's referring to carnality. It's referring to the flesh. It's, uh, it means licentious conduct, if you will. And our culture, our society is, is just awash with sensuality. Jude accused the false teachers in his little letter in Jude chapter 4 of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now we understand why they denied the truths of the Christian faith. And it's because they want to satisfy their own lusts and do it under the guise of religion. This has been going on for for centuries. In Peter's day, there were many uh, uh, sensual-based religions which had temple prostitutes and so on. And uh, actually, many follow the evil example of the conduct of the priests of these systems, if you will. And it's proof that people would rather follow false than truth, the sensual rather than the spiritual, because it appeals to the flesh. (laughs) I remember one of my uh, professors, uh, he had a way of putting things that was memorable, and he talked about one of the downfalls of many Christians is the fact that they get wrapped up with gold, girls, or glory. Gold, girls, or glory. Another way to put it is money, sex, and power. And we've seen enough in the Christian church over the last several decades, to recognize that this is with us, always with us. Uh, They are sensual. And then they are greedy. Look at the first part of verse 3, another identity of them. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, the lie comes forth. But they're greedy. They are cleverly getting others to minister to them. The the minor prophet Micah described these false prophets of his day this way. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. And so Peter knew that we were under attack. And we see that. All you have to do is turn on some certain TV stations to get the latest tele evangelist, or you can go to Houston and to a gigantic stadium full of tens of thousands of people to hear a health and wealth gospel. It is with us today. Books. Uh, up at the uh, local supermarket uh, proclaiming this false gospel. So we need to be aware that there are deceivers. they are deniers of Jesus Christ, I think, which is the key point. They are destroyers of our faith. They are sensual, and they are greedy. And uh, we are going to continue next week with the destruction of false teachers and then our hope, the deliverance of the godly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, and thank you that you are a mighty God that is worthy of our adoration, our praise, and our exaltation. Thank you for this morning for your word, and Lord, we pray that we would be attentive to your word, that we would allow you to teach us through your truth, and Lord, that we would be aware and be able to identify false teachers, whether it be in things we read or things we see in the media or even within our own fellowship, Lord, that we would be able to recognize false teachers and not bend to their ways. And, Lord, we pray for your illumining presence in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us, and we thank you for your work within our lives here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.